Chapter thirty two of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter thirty two. The state of my feelings may be easily conceived to consist of mixed but on the whole agreeable sensations. The death of Hadwin and his elder daughter could not be thought upon without keen regrets. These it was useless to indulge and were outweighed by reflections on the personal security in which the survivor was now placed. It was hurtful to expend my unprofitable cares upon the dead, while there existed one to whom they could be of essential benefit, and in whose happiness they would find an ample compensation. This happiness, however, was still incomplete. It was still exposed to hazard, and much remained to be done before adequate provision was made against the worst of evils, poverty. I now found that Eliza, being only fifteen years old, stood in need of a guardian, and that the forms of law required that someone should make himself her father's administrator. Mr. Curling, being tolerably conversant with these subjects, pointed out the mode to be pursued, and engaged to act on this occasion as Eliza's friend. There was another topic on which my happiness, as well as that of my friend, required us to form some decision. I formerly mentioned that during my abode at Malverton I had not been insensible to the attractions of this girl. An affection had stolen upon me for which it was easily discovered that I should not have been denied a suitable return. My reasons for stifling these emotions at that time have been mentioned. It may now be asked what effect subsequent events had produced on my feelings, and how far partaking and relieving her distresses had revived a passion which may readily be supposed to have been at no time entirely extinguished. The impediments which then existed were removed. Our union would no longer risk the resentment or sorrow of her excellent parent. She had no longer a sister to divide with her the property of the farm, and make what was sufficient for both when living together, too little for either separately. Her youth and simplicity required, beyond most others, a legal protector, and her happiness was involved in the success of those hopes which she took no pains to conceal. As to me, it seemed at first view as if every incident conspired to determine my choice. Omitting all regard to the happiness of others, my own interest could not fail to recommend a scheme by which the precious benefits of competence and independence might be honestly obtained. The excursions of my fancy had sometimes carried me beyond the bounds prescribed by my situation, but they were, nevertheless, limited to that field to which I had once some prospect of acquiring a title. All I wanted for the basis of my gaudiest and most dazzling structures was a hundred acres of plough-land and meadow. Here my spirit of improvement, my zeal to invent and apply new maxims of household luxury and convenience, new modes and instruments of tillage, new arts connected with orchard, garden, and cornfield, were supplied with abundant scope. Though the want of these would not benumb my activity or take away content, the possession would confer exquisite and permanent enjoyments. 
my thoughts have ever hovered over the images of wife and children with more delight than over any other images. My fancy was always active on this theme, and its reveries sufficiently ecstatic and glowing, but since my intercourse with this girl, my scattered visions were collected and concentrated. I had now a form and features before me, a sweet and melodious voice vibrated in my ear, my soul was filled, as it were, with her lineaments and gestures, actions and looks. All ideas, possessing any relation to beauty or sex, appeared to assume this shape. They kept an immovable place in my mind. They diffused around them an ineffable complacency. Love is merely a value as a prelude to a more tender, intimate, and sacred union. Was I not in love? And did I not pant after the irrevocable bounds, the boundless privileges of wedlock? The question which others might ask, I have asked myself. Was I not in love? I am really at a loss for an answer. There seemed to be irresistible weight in the reasons why I should refuse to marry, and even forbear to foster love in my friend. I considered my youth, my defective education, and my limited views. I had passed from my cottage into the world. I had acquired, even in my transient sojourn among the busy haunts of men, more knowledge than the lucubrations and employments of all my previous years had conferred. Hence I might infer the childlike immaturity of my understanding and the rapid progress I was still capable of making. Was this an age to form an irrevocable contract, to choose the companion of my future life, the associate of my schemes of intellectual and benevolent activity? I had reason to contemn my own acquisitions, but were not those of Eliza still more slender? Could I rely upon the permanence of her equanimity and her docility to my instructions? What qualities might not time unfold, and how little was I qualified to estimate the character of one whom no vicissitude or hardship had approached before the death of her father, whose ignorance was indeed great, when it could justly be said even to exceed my own? Should I mix with the world, enroll myself in different classes of society, be a witness to new scenes? Might not my modes of judging undergo essential variations? Might I not gain the knowledge of beings whose virtue was the gift of experience and the growth of knowledge, who joined to the modesty and charms of woman the benefits of education, the maturity and steadfastness of age, and with whose character and sentiments my own would be much more congenial than they could possibly be with the extreme youth, rustic simplicity, and mental imperfections of Eliza Hadwin? To say truth, I was now conscious of a revolution in my mind. I can scarcely assign its true cause. No tokens of it appeared during my late retreat to Malverton. Subsequent incidents, perhaps, joined with the influence of meditation, had generated new views. 
on my first visit to the city I had met with nothing but scenes of folly, depravity, and cunning. No wonder that the images connected with the city were disastrous and gloomy. But my second visit produced somewhat different impressions. Maravegli, Estwick, Medlicote, and you were beings who inspired veneration and love. Your residence appeared to beautify and consecrate this spot, and gave birth to an opinion that, if cities are the chosen seats of misery and vice, they are likewise the soil of all the laudable and strenuous productions of mind. My curiosity and thirst of knowledge had likewise received a new direction. Books and inanimate nature were cold and lifeless instructors. Men, and the works of men, were the objects of rational study, and our own eyes only could communicate just conceptions of human performances. The influence of manners, professions, and social institutions could be thoroughly known only by direct inspection. Competence, fixed property, and a settled abode, rural occupations and conjugal pleasures were justly to be prized, but their value could be known and their benefits fully enjoyed only by those who have tried all scenes, who have mixed with all classes and ranks, who have partaken of all conditions, and who have visited different hemispheres and climates and nations. The next five or eight years of my life should be devoted to activity and change. It should be a period of hardship, danger, and privation. It should be my apprenticeship to fortitude and wisdom, and be employed to fit me for the tranquil pleasures and steadfast exertions of the remainder of my life. In consequence of these reflections, I determined to suppress that tenderness which the company of Miss Hadwin produced, to remove any mistakes into which she had fallen, and to put it out of my power to claim for her more than the dues of friendship. All ambiguities in a case like this, and all delays were hurtful. She was not exempt from passion, but this passion, I thought, was young and easily extinguished. In a short time her health was restored, and her grief melted down to a tender melancholy. I chose a suitable moment, when not embarrassed by the presence of others, to reveal my thoughts. My disclosure was ingenuous and perfect. I laid before her the whole train of my thoughts, nearly in the order, though indifferent in more copious terms than those in which I have just explained them to you. I concealed nothing. The impression which her artless loveliness had made upon me at Malverton, my motives for estranging myself from her society, the nature of my present feelings with regard to her, and my belief of the state of her heart, the reasonings into which I had entered, the advantages of wedlock and its inconveniences, and, finally, the resolution I had formed of seeking the city, and perhaps of crossing the ocean, were minutely detailed. She interrupted me not, but, changing looks, blushes, flutterings, and sighs, showed her to be deeply and variously affected by my discourse. 
I paused for some observation or comment. She seemed conscious of my expectation, but had no power to speak. Overpowered at length by her emotions, she burst into tears. I was at a loss in what manner to construe these symptoms. I waited till her vehemence was somewhat subsided, and then said, "'What think you of my schemes? Your approbation is of some moment. Do you approve of them or not?' This question excited some little resentment, and she answered, "'You have left me nothing to say. Go and be happy, no matter what becomes of me. I hope I shall be able to take care of myself.' The tone in which this was said had something in it of upbraiding. "'Your happiness,' said I, "'is too dear to me to leave it in danger.' In this house you will not need my protection, but I shall never be so far from you as to be disabled from hearing how you fare, by letter, and of being active for your good. You have some money which you must husband well. Any rent from your farm cannot be soon expected, but what you have got, if you remain with Mr. Curling, will pay your board and all other expenses for two years, but you must be a good economist.' I shall expect, continued I, with a serious smile, a punctual account of all your sayings and doings. I must know how every minute is employed, and every penny is expended, and if I find you erring, I must tell you so in good round terms. These words did not dissipate the sullenness which her looks had betrayed. She still forbore to look at me, and said, I do not know how I should tell you everything. You care so little about me that I should only be troublesome. I'm old enough to think and act for myself, and I shall advise with nobody but myself. That is true, said I. I shall rejoice to see you independent and free. Consult your own understanding, and act according to its dictates. Nothing more is wanting to make you useful and happy. I am anxious to return to the city, but, if you will allow me, we'll go first to Malverton, see that things are in due order, and that old Caleb is well. From thence, if you please, I will call at your uncle's and tell him what has happened. He may otherwise entertain pretensions and form views erroneous in themselves and injurious to you. He may think himself entitled to manage your estate." He may either suppose a will to have been made, or may actually have heard from your father, or from others, of that which you burnt, and in which he was named executor. His boisterous and sordid temper may prompt him to seize your house and goods, unless seasonably apprised of the truth, and, when he knows the truth, he may start into a rage, which I shall be more fitted to encounter than you. I am told that anger transforms him into a ferocious madman." "'Shall I call upon him?' She shuddered at the picture which I had drawn of her uncle's character, but this emotion quickly gave place to self-upbraiding for the manner in which she had repelled my proffers of service. She melted once more into tears, and exclaimed, "'I am not worthy of the pains you take for me. I am unfeeling and ungrateful. Why should I think ill of you for despising me when I despise myself?' You do yourself injustice, my friend. I think I see your most secret thoughts, and these, instead of exciting anger or contempt, only awaken compassion and tenderness. You love, and must therefore conceive my conduct to be perverse and cruel. 
I counted on your harboring such thoughts. Time only and reflection will enable you to see my motives in their true light. Hereafter you will recollect my words and find them sufficient to justify my conduct. You will acknowledge the propriety of my engaging in the cares of the world before I sit down in retirement and ease. Ah, how much you mistake me! I admire and approve of your schemes. What angers and distresses me is that you think me unworthy to partake of your cares and labors, that you regard my company as an obstacle and encumbrance, that assistance and counsel must all proceed from you, and that no scene is fit for me but what you regard as slothful and inglorious. Have I not the same claims to be wise and active and courageous as you? If I am ignorant and weak, do I not owe it to the same cause that has made you so? And will not the same means which promote your improvement be likewise useful to me? You desire to obtain knowledge by traveling and conversing with many persons and studying many sciences, but you desire it for yourself alone. Me you think poor, weak, and contemptible, fit for nothing but to spin and churn. Provided I exist, am screened from the weather, have enough to eat and drink, you are satisfied. As to strengthening my mind and enlarging my knowledge, these things are valuable to you, but on me they're thrown away. I deserve not the gift. This strain, simple and just as it was, was wholly unexpected. I was surprised and disconcerted. In my previous reasonings I had certainly considered her sex as utterly unfitting her for those scenes and pursuits to which I had destined myself. Not a doubt of the validity of my conclusion had insinuated itself, but now my belief was shaken, though it was not subverted. I could not deny that human ignorance was curable by the same means in one sex as in the other, that fortitude and skill were of no less value to one than to the other. Questionless, my friend was rendered, by her age and inexperience, if not by sex, more helpless and dependent than I, but had I not been prone to overrate the difficulties which I should encounter? Had I not deemed unjustly of her constancy and force of mind? Marriage would render her property joint, and would not compel me to take up my abode in the woods, to abide forever in one spot, to shackle my curiosity or limit my excursions. But marriage was a contract awful and irrevocable. Was this the woman with whom my reason enjoined me to blend my fate without the power of dissolution? Would not time unfold qualities in her, which I did not at present suspect, and which would evince an incurable difference in our minds? Would not time lead me to the feet of one who more nearly approached that standard of ideal excellence which poets and romancers had exhibited to my view? These considerations were powerful and delicate. I knew not in what terms to state them to my companion, so as to preclude the imputation of arrogance or indecorum. It became me, however, to be explicit, and to excite her resentment rather than mislead her judgment. She collected my meaning from a few words, and, 
interrupting me, said, "'How very low is the poor Eliza in your opinion! We are indeed both too young to be married. May I not see you and talk with you without being your wife? May I not share your knowledge, relieve your cares, and enjoy your confidence as a sister might do?' May I not accompany you in your journeys and studies, as one friend accompanies another? My property may be yours, you may employ it for your benefit and mine, not because you are my husband, but my friend. You are going to the city. Let me go along with you. Let me live where you live. The house that is large enough to hold you will hold me. The fare that is good enough for you will be luxury to me. Oh, let it be so, will you? You cannot think how studious, how thoughtful, how inquisitive I will be, how tenderly I will nurse you when sick. It is possible you may be sick, you know, and no one in the world will be half so watchful and affectionate as I shall be. Will you let me? In saying this, her earnestness gave new pathos to her voice. Insensibly she put her face close to mine, and transported beyond the usual bounds of reserve by the charms of that picture which her fancy contemplated she put her lips to my cheek and repeated in a melting accent will you let me you my friends who have not seen eliza hadwin cannot conceive what effect this entreaty was adapted to produce in me she has surely the sweetest voice the most speaking features the most delicate symmetry that ever woman possessed. Her guileless simplicity and tenderness made her more enchanting. To be the object of devotion to a heart so fervent and pure was, surely, no common privilege. Thus did she tender me herself, and was not the gift to be received with eagerness and gratitude? No. I was not so much a stranger to mankind as to acquiesce in this scheme. As my sister or my wife, the world would suffer us to reside under the same roof, to apply to common use the same property, and daily to enjoy the company of each other. But she was not my sister, and marriage would be an act of the grossest indiscretion. I explained to her, in few words, the objections to which her project was liable. "'Well, then,' she said, "'let me live in the next house, in the neighborhood, or at least in the same city. Let me be where I may see you once a day, or once a week, or once a month. Shut me not wholly from your society and the means of becoming, in time, less ignorant and foolish than I now am.' After a pause I replied, "'I love you too well not to comply with this request.' Perhaps the city will be as suitable a residence as any other for you, as it will for some time be most convenient to me. I shall be better able to watch over your welfare and supply you with the means of improvement when you are within a small distance. At present you must consent to remain here while I visit your uncle and afterwards go to the city. I shall look out for you a suitable lodging and inform you when it is found." If you then continue in the same mind, I will come, and, having gained the approbation of Mr. Curling, I will conduct you to town. Here ended our dialogue. End of chapter 32